15 weeks of Heroes of the Faith. Wow. 15 weeks. This is the last lesson on Heroes of the Faith. So Hebrews 11 will be taken care of with this lesson. 15 weeks though. What have we learned? What have we learned? We're going to review a little bit of that today. But Hebrews 11, 35 through 40, which is the last passage that we'll cover in this chapter. It's the last six chapters, uh, the last six verses of this chapter. We read this, Women received their dead raised back to life. And others were tortured after not accepting release so they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced the trial of mocking and scourging, yes, and even chains and prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were murdered with the sword. They went around in sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute, afflicted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered around in deserts and mountains, caves and holes in the ground. And all these, though they, though commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that only with us would they reach perfection. Hmm. Wow. Doesn't sound like the other weeks, does it? Doesn't sound like the other stories that we've heard. What we heard was those who were shutting the mouths of lions, who were clenching fires, those who were beating mighty armies with the jawbone of a donkey, those who were doing great mighty works of God that all could see. And now today, wow, boy, these guys are being sawn in two. They're being stoned to death. They're being put to death with the sword. They're living in sheepskins and goatskins. They're destitute. They're living in caves. They don't even have a proper roof over their heads. And yet I will tell you, these that we are reading about today are every bit as great in the works that they perform as those that we read of before. Every one of them. And every one of them are commended just as those that came before. So walking the life of faith does not guarantee ease in this life. It doesn't guarantee success. What is that noise, Tony? Kim, what is that noise? My belt? it out a little. Is that better? Can you hear? Can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's okay. Um, yeah. So living a life of faith doesn't guarantee ease of life here on this earth. It doesn't guarantee us that we will achieve success as most Human beings define success from their narrow point of view that discounts the point of view of God. No, sometimes it can guarantee you the very opposite. Sometimes if you walk the life of faith, you may be persecuted by those who are against God. You may even be put to death by the same. But yet, this is still the walk of faith. Now let's talk once again about what faith is because it's critical as we wrap this up that we really have an understanding of what it means to walk in faith since we're told that every one of these were commended because of their faith. 
They weren't commended because of the great acts they did. They weren't commended because of the armies they defeated or the lions whose mouths they shut or the fires that they quenched. Nor were they commended because of the sacrifices that they made. They were commended for their faith. Just like Abraham was commended for his faith. Abraham believed and it was counted to him for righteousness. Rob Shaul, the Apostle Paul, tells us. And this is exactly what we're commended for if we're to be commended. We're commended for our faith. Not our acts, but our faith. And it is through that faith that we then do the mighty acts that God has called us to do. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 and Hebrews 11, 6 tell us what faith is. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of realities not seen, for by it the elders received commendation. So let's see again. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. So it's not even something that you see yet. And yet it still has substance. It's the substance of those things that in God you hope for. That's faith. It's the substance of things that are hoped for. But it goes a step further. And that's also the evidence of those things not yet seen. Paul asked the question elsewhere, why do we hope if we already have what we hope for? Hope isn't for what you already have. Hope is for what you're expecting that God has promised. That's what hope is for. And so this is exactly what we're talking about here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11, book of Hebrews. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's not something you already have. It's something you hope for because it's been promised. And because it's been promised by God and we know that God is true to His Word, then we don't have to be concerned whether we're going to have it or not. We wait in patience. We are hopeful that it is coming to us because we know it will. Because we also believe that though we don't see it yet, there is still evidence that we have this thing. And what's the evidence that we have? Here's your evidence right here. Your evidence right here. You have it. Do you believe this? Maybe what's more, do you know what's in here? And I ask that question because there's so many that have died, that have given their lives because of what is in here, they haven't seen any more than you have of the final promise. And yet they know the final promise belongs to them because it's written in here. It's God's word and God is true. I see a lot of people just kind of looking. Are you understanding this? This is real. And the word that's in it is real. It really does come from God. It's a promise that really was made by Him. Therefore, it is a hope that we can carry that we know that we have because God is true. And so what if we see terrible persecution in our nation Just like I have seen others go through whom I was blessed to minister with. What if we have some of us who are rounded up and put to death? Or who are thrown into concentration camps under such harsh conditions that they die from disease? Are we still going to have that same hope 
that we claim to have today. I will tell you, if you don't know this word, it's not likely you will. I would say that if you don't know this word today, to say that you have this hope is in large measure lip service anyways. If I'm stepping on some toes, that's fine. I mean to. You see, if we're going to know what it means to have faith in God, then we've got to know His Word. If we don't know His Word, it's hard to say that we really have faith in God, isn't it? There's an element to which, here in the U.S., we speak very cavalierly. And it's very easy for us to say words that we don't mean, not because we're lying, but we don't mean because we don't even know what we're saying. And so what does it mean to have faith in God? It means to follow Him. What does it mean to be a Yeshua follower? To follow Yeshua and to follow His example. What was His example? He gave His life for the congregation. That was His example. And so if you're a Yeshua follower, and you're supposed to follow His example, are you willing to lay down your life for the congregation? Whoa. So if we're not willing to lay down our lives for the congregation, we're not really Yeshua followers, are we? Because that was His example, and to be a follower of Him means we're going to follow His example. Otherwise, why are we even talking about being His followers? And then we read in Hebrews eleven six. now without faith, it is impossible to please God. Oh my goodness! Now we find that if we don't have this faith that is spoken of in verses 1 and 2, then there's no way we can please God. No way. Without faith, no one can please God. For the one who comes to God must believe that God exists and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. What is the reward? Is it riches here on this earth? Is it ease of life? Obviously not. If we read that those in 35 through 40 of this chapter were commended just like those that had all those things. The promise is far more precious and far more valuable. It's the promise for eternal life. It's the promise of enjoying the glory of God with Him. It is the promise of eternal life. And it is the promise of rich reward in that eternal life from God Himself. Ask yourself this question. What is it that you want the most? Do you want millions of dollars now? Or do you want to hear the voice of your King and your Lord telling you, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in little, now you are master of much. You see, this was the choice that Jacob and Esau both had to make. Esau proved that he valued the things of this world. He wanted the millions of dollars here. Jacob proved that he valued the things of God more. That what he was interested in was hearing that his master was pleased with what he had done. This is the very essence of faith. What are you living for? Are you living for this life? Or are you living for eternal life with God? Are you living for now or are you living for eternity? There's a rather mischievous teaching that uh, grips certain church flows 
in particular some of those who we might call TV preachers. I have a problem with this particular teaching. I'm sure all of us have heard the phrase, name it, claim it. I have a problem with name it, claim it. I don't have a problem with God making people wealthy. I know He does. I don't have a problem with the fact that if you live a life that is godly unto Messiah Yeshua, that it's going to help you to live a better life than you would if you did not. But I have a problem with the idea of name it, claim it. So let's talk about what name it, claim it is. What name it, claim it is basically saying that if there's anything that you can focus on that you want, and you have enough faith, and you name it, then you can claim it. Anything. So you want that nice Lexus that you see driving by down the road, you, you want to be able to own it, and you just you, you, you picture it, you focus on it, you name it, and then you claim it, and by golly, it's going to come to you. This is, this is hogwash. It really is. It's hokum. It doesn't work that way. Anyone who has lived outside of the wealth and the ease of the Western world knows it doesn't work that way. My brothers and sisters in Zimbabwe, they certainly didn't have this, even have just the system of the country that they lived in would not have made it possible. Zimbabwe produces nothing now. And so how could they name and claim anything? So it's a pernicious teaching that some have fallen for. Now there's also another modification on the theme which I find to be even more pernicious. That if you just buy this miracle spring water and you claim it with this miracle spring water that it's going to come to you $40,000 in the mail tomorrow morning. Well, somebody should at least smile at that. It, it sounds so strange. It is strange. And this is exactly why I have such a problem with this. Because it, it just doesn't match with the biblical record. I'll tell you something else I have a problem with. The whole idea that everyone's going to be raptured out here and we're going to gr escape great tribulation. Folks, let me tell you, our brothers and sisters all over the world have been facing great tribulation since the beginning. Why do we think in the wealthy West that we're going to escape this. Are we somehow better than they? More holy than they? More faithful than they? Have greater faith than they? No, we don't. Now I'll tell you, I do believe that living a godly life will aid anyone in being prosperous and healthy Living a healthy life will make it where you live longer than the average person lives. If you eat low-fat diets that are low in sugar content, that are high in roughage, and high in all the vitamins that you need, and if you exercise accordingly, then you will live a healthier life than the person down the street who eats way too many calories and eats an unhealthy diet and doesn't exercise. Just makes sense. If you smoke, you're going to die earlier than if you don't smoke. People don't live well with lung cancer or with COPD or heart disease or any of the other cancers that are contributed heavily to by the practice of smoking. If you drink heavily, you're going to die earlier than those who don't because you will pickle your liver. 
And I will tell you, late-stage cirrhosis of the liver is something very ugly to look at. I've seen it. If you live a healthy life, if you avoid doing the things that are going to kill your body, then you're going to live a better life than those who don't. Does that make sense? So yeah, I absolutely believe that. It's the truth. It's part of the promise of long life that we receive here. 70 years, 80 if we're strong, maybe even more. My dad's 85 and he's still going strong. But it's just that simply claiming that because we have faith, we deserve to have something or should have something or will have something. This is not scriptural. Still, what about wealth? God blessed Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov with great wealth. We read that he was the one who gave David his wealth and his power. 2 Samuel 12, 7-18. through 18. Deuteronomy 29, 8 tells us, So keep the words of this covenant and do them, so that you may prosper in all that you do. God doesn't have a problem with people prospering here. Some people prosper because they are particularly smart and they're gifted with knowing how to make money. Other people prosper in other ways, though. Have you seen those who are very generous, but they're just poor as, as yesterday's old bread? And yet they have friends. Wow, they have friends. Have they not prospered through those friendships? I have a very good wife. Have I not prospered by having Annette as my wife? When we talk about prospering, we need to have our focus on something more than merely money. Prospering means something more than just money. And what about those who prosper with money? Is there a reason why God might prosper some with money, but others not so much? In 3 John 1-2, through we read, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Gaius certainly prospered. He was, from all accounts that we can understand from Scripture, a very, very wealthy man. Let me tell you something else about Gaius, though. He was also a very generous man who gave away huge gobs of his wealth to missionaries that would pass through to the poor within the congregation and even to strangers who were poor. This was Gaius. In short, while he had money, his money did not have him. Here's the question for you. Do you own your money or does your money own you? If your money owns you, God is not going to prosper you. The fact is, Gaius owned his money. His money did not own him. And it was easy for him to give it away. That's how you can find out if your money owns you. How hard is it for you to part with it? If it's really, really hard to part with, your money has too much of a hold on you. It's only when you can give it away fairly easily that you can say that you truly own your money. Your money does not own you. Could that be one of the reasons why God is more than happy to prosper some? But others, He has to guard them against that. Because I will tell you, if your money owns you, it will become a snare to you, and it will eventually destroy you. And God is going to protect His people from what is going to destroy them.
So living a godly life in Messiah Yeshua aids one to live a blessed life. Let's put it that way. Maybe we don't have to say a prosperous life, a blessed life. And maybe that'll take our eyes off of the money part of the equation. Because prospering means so much more than just money. Things that are far more important than money. Things that money can never buy. I enjoyed seeing the success of my Zimbabwean friends when they came to faith in Yeshua. When they began tithing. And when they lived a pattern of life that was pleasing to God. And I saw their lives improve. It doesn't mean they began they became a whole lot wealthier, at least not right away. It does mean that they became smarter with the money that they had. It also means that they became generous with the money that they had. And when we're generous with what God has given us, then God can pour more into us. There's a scripture that tells us something like that, though I didn't write it down for this particular message. However, when we read the last part of Hebrews 11, once again we find that living a godly life in no way is a guarantee of wealth, fame, or even long earthly life in times of great tribulation. I said great tribulation has normally been the condition of God's people. It has been. I want you to consider with me how many of the prophets actually died. How many of the prophets actually died? Well, in 1 Kings 18.4, Jezebel murdered hundreds of the prophets and priests of God during her wicked reign. You remember King Manasseh, the really, really evil king? He actually had the prophet Isaiah sawn in two with a large saw. Ouch. That wouldn't be very pleasant. So are we to believe that God was displeased with Isaiah and that's why this happened to him? Of course not. But to say that living a life of faith means a life of ease and great success and great fame as the world describes it, that's just, that's just not true. Amos of Tekoa was killed after being struck by Ahaziah with his kingly staff. Consider the words of Yeshua in Matthew 23.35 about all those prophets who were killed In fact, he mentions one that was actually killed in the temple. And that was Zechariah, son of Berechiah. Ten of the eleven disciples who followed Yeshua were put to death by violence. So are we to believe that Yeshua's disciples were somehow not following God because they suffered grisly deaths? Of course not. The fact of the matter is, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we living for this world or are we living for God and the world to come? If we're living for this world, then we will have our blessing here. But if we're living for the world to come, then that's the blessing that we're going to receive. And for us to claim that somebody doesn't have enough faith because they're poor is wrong. Now we'll tell you, that could be true. Because faith does order our lives. And if you're living your life in such a way that you're basically burning through all of your cash because you don't know how to handle it, because you're gambling or you're drinking or you're fooling around with, uh, if you're a man, women with expensive taste, shall we say, then you're going to wake up poor in the morning. Whereas if you handled your money better, well, invested it well, and were smart with it, your wealth will grow.
Let's talk about some stories of persecution, loss, and death. Not in the biblical time frame. But something closer to home. Consider that amongst the founding fathers of this nation, numerous of them, though they had been men of property and wealth before the war, died in penury. They gave their entire fortunes aiding the United States to become a nation and to win that revolutionary war that was rather ruinous for many people. Almost all of them were men of faith. They had a strong understanding of why they were doing what they were doing and it certainly didn't leave them wealthy in the end necessarily. So that's one example from American history. What about an example from before World War II and after World War II? Let's talk about Richard Wurmbrandt. He was a Jewish follower of Yeshua who became a pastor first in the Anglican and then in the Lutheran church. In, 17, in 1938, he and his wife Sabine both became believers. Both were Jewish. Anyways, they did a lot of work working with um, those who were being mistreated by the Nazis during World War II, saving many Jewish children from certain death. Sabine couldn't save her own family, though. They all died in the ovens. Wow, I thought this thing of faith was supposed to make you healthy and wealthy and wise. Well, maybe not necessarily wealthy as the world defines it. After the war, in 1948, there was a large congress that was called in Bucharest, the capital of Romania. And all these pastors from all these church groups showed up and they, they were speaking glowingly of communism and the way that they knew they could work together with the communists. When it came his turn to speak, Bernbrandt got up and he said that the only thing that the church should be living for is Yeshua and the only thing we should be proclaiming is His good news. For that, he was thrown into the gulags. A few years later, his wife followed him into the gulags. And for many years, their nine-year-old son essentially had to raise himself with help from some Christian friends who took him in, though it would cost them their lives if the government had known what they did. Wow. Richard Wurmbrandt said there came a time, and, and listen, this man was brilliant. You know he was fluent in nine languages? Nine languages. The guy was a genius, and he had nearly a photographic memory. He had practically memorized the entirety of Scripture. And do you realize there was a time that he was in the camps where he said he came to a point that he couldn't remember anything anymore. They had been pumping these drugs into his veins to try to find out what he knew. But these drugs were destroying his mind. And the daily beatings and the torture were taking a toll also. This guy said he couldn't remember his child's name. He couldn't remember his wife's face. He couldn't remember Scripture. He said there was one thing that he could remember. And it was a children's nursery rhyme that he learned. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. That's what he faced. Terrible. Terrible persecution being told that his wife had left him, being told that his wife had succumbed 
to her mistreatment, anything that could be done to break this man of God is what that evil government was doing to him. But he held on. He held on. And eventually he was released and Sabine was released and they were able to take their son with them to the United States where they formed an organization called Voice of the Martyrs. Because you see, Richard Vermbrandt, when he was, when a ransom was being paid for he and his wife, $10,000, believers in the West raised this money to ransom them. He didn't want to leave his people. It's his people who told him, Richard, you must go. You must go. You must go to the West and you must start an organization that tells the world about us. And he did. You see this thing called persecution. We sometimes think it's rather far away because it really doesn't touch us here. And it really doesn't. Oh, I know. Uh, some people are fond of saying, oh, that we're persecuted because we're told that we can't say a prayer at school. No, that is not persecution. That's just blind people rejecting God and trying to tell others that they can't worship God either. Now, it might become persecution down the road, but it's not persecution yet. Persecution is what Richard Vermbrandt went through. That was persecution. And ask yourself the question, if it happened to you, would you last? Would you continue to proclaim Yeshua and Him crucified? Or would you break and would you give in and renounce your faith? Because that was the choice you had. Renounce your faith and we're going to release you from prison. We're going to give you a better apartment. We're going to give you a car. We're going to give you more money. Once again, the question is, like Esau, are you going to live for this world? Or like Jacob, are you going to live for the things of God? That's the real question. It's not how wealthy can you become because you can name it and claim it better than the guy next to you. What about persecutions in the former Soviet Union? Oh my gosh. After living there for four years and actually working with the people who were persecuted, the number of stories I have the guy, who's brought, the guy who lived directly across the street from us, but whose brother was shot in the back by the KGB when they broke in on one of their secret meetings. And the guy was trying to jump out the window to protect the Bible, the only Bible that the entire congregation had, and he was shot as he tried to get away. What about the couple, both of him whom were arrested? and their nine children taken away from them and farmed out to properly atheist families who would raise them up to hate God. That couple never made it out of the gulags. What about the pastor who was put in the gulags for five years because he had five Bibles, which were the only five Bibles that his growing church had of over 200 members. Five Bibles for all of them. You know what they used to do? They would tear the Bible into chapters and they would pass it around. And during the time that you had one of these chapters, you know what you'd do with it? You were going to live as if your life depended on memorizing every word. And that's what they did. Hours and hours and hours they would spend on memorizing the Word of God. It was so precious to them. How precious is the Word of God to us? What about the young lady who is getting ready to marry her fiancé 
And she was arrested by the KGB off in the woods with a secret youth meeting. And she was thrown into the gulag. But before she was thrown into the gulag, the judge promised her that during her years in the gulag, she would be changed. And by the time she left, there would be no man who would want to be near her, much less look at her. But, if you renounce your faith in this Jesus character you say you believe in, then we'll give you all kinds of wealth. Your father will have a better job. You'll have a bigger apartment. Your father will have a car. And when you come of age, we'll give you a car too. She went before the judge in her wedding dress with the single white rose. Must have been quite a sight for this judge. Most people did not come attired uh, quite so richly. And he asked her what this was about. She said, Judge, how can I renounce the one who gave me life and would also give you life if you but asked it of him? Man, that woman had guts. Really? Guts to do that in front of that judge. We banged the gavel down. He was angry and he sentenced her to five years in the gulag. That woman became the wife of the senior bishop of the Belarusian Pentecostal Church. I was blessed to know these two. They were truly, truly great people whose faith had stood the test. What about the five missionary men who died in the jungles of Ecuador? And what about the persecutions of Yeshua followers today all over the Islamic world because of the Muslims? Are we actually going to say that any of these people have not walked with God and that's why these bad things are happening? Heavens, no! And so what I want to do is read that again, Hebrews 11, 35-40, after we've had this history. And let's consider what it's actually saying. Indeed, after the heroism of all our biblical heroes, we read this. Others were tortured after not accepting release so they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced the trial of mocking and scourging, yes, and even chains in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were murdered with the sword, they went around in sheepskins and goatskins, they were destitute, afflicted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered around in deserts and mountains, caves and holes in the ground. And all these, though commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that only with us would they reach perfection. Folks, I want every one of you to live a godly life. And in living a godly life, I truly hope you prosper. May you prosper even as your souls prosper, I'll say. But I want you to think about the implications of what I just said. May your souls prosper. May you prosper even as your souls prosper. If your soul isn't prospering, therefore, and I just prayed that for you and God answers it, how much is your body going to prosper? If you think of the exact words that are said, may you prosper as your souls prosper. Start from here, folks. Start from here. The seed of faith. Start from your heart. Start from hearing the Word of God. Start from learning the Word of God. Start from memorizing the Word of God so that it becomes second nature to you. So that you're sleeping and you're dreaming Scripture as you sleep at night. Do that. And what's going to happen is your soul is going to begin to prosper. 
You're going to have faith to overcome obstacles that before you could never see yourself overcoming. But now you overcome them because you have faith. Why do you have faith? Because you know the Word of God, you trust God, and you know the promise that He's made to you is true. And nothing, nothing, nothing can take it away from you. The devil can try, but he can't take it away from you. The flesh of man can try, but he can't take it away from you either. Because it's a wealth that's not stored up on this earth. It's a wealth that's stored up in heaven above and that's stored up in your heart right here. And there's no one who can take those things from you. It's where moth and rust cannot destroy. And there's no power of hell or of this earth that can take it away either. So you start there. And you let your faith grow. And then God calls you to do something. And though it sounds difficult and you're not sure how you can do it, you do it anyways. And you will probably do it imperfectly. You'll probably stumble along the way. I don't know how many times I have stumbled with every new venture that God sends me on. Every new venture, I stumble over and over again. But I stick with it and eventually I begin to get it right. You notice I said begin. I don't know if I can name a single time when I finally had it perfect at any point. But I had learned the lessons and I could feel the pleasure of my father telling me, you got it, son. You understand. Now you're ready for the next thing. Let me tell you, there is nothing like hearing, like feeling the pleasure of your Heavenly Father. I want to close with this. There was a movie that was made many years ago called Chariots of Fire. And one of the characters that Chariots of Fire was about was a man named Eric Little. He was a cross-country runner. He was a Scotsman. He was fast, and he had incredible endurance. Another runner had a coach, a professional coach, and they were talking about Eric Little at one point. And this guy asked how he could become like Eric Little. And the guy said, you can't. Why? Because Little doesn't have great form. What he's got is heart. He's all heart. And that's exactly what the coach told him. He's all heart. Unless you've got heart like Eric Little, you can't be like Eric Little. That's what makes him unique and it's what makes him so hard to beat. Because when everyone else would give up because they don't have the heart to endure the pain any longer, Eric Little would keep going. And he endured the pain. There's one scene where Eric is talking to his sister and having this, this very serious debate because, you know, they believed in, in Sabbath also. But they believed their Sabbath was on Sunday. And he would not compete on Sunday. And he was in danger of being excluded from the Olympics because he wanted to compete on that day that he had set aside for God and God alone. And so he and his sister are having this debate about this because he's having to make this decision. And it's kind of a hard decision because he's been asked to represent the country of Great Britain in the Olympics. Well, of course, he made his decision. He didn't run on his Sabbath. He was allowed to compete in another race at another time. But he was talking to his sister about what it was like when he ran. And he told his sister, when I run, I feel the pleasure of God. So let me ask you, do you ever feel the pleasure of God? I'll tell you when I feel the pleasure of God. It's when I have run a marathon by doing something that God has asked me to do. And it's been hard and it's been difficult 
And I'm at the point where I almost feel beaten, but I press through and I run and run and run anyways. I don't give in. I don't give up. I don't stop. And then I feel the pleasure of God. So what is it that keeps you going when everything is telling you to stop? When the pain in your body says you can't go any further. When the depression that you feel because things seem to be falling apart is almost crushing you. When you have had your best friend deny you Well, you've got to run on faith at that point. There's nothing else. And what is faith? The substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Say that with me. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for. The substance of things not seen. Say it again. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things not seen. That is faith. And if you go on that and you stick with it, you're going to come to those times when you just feel the pleasure of God saying, well done, good and faithful servant. May that be the very thing that we all live to hear. Amen. Please stand and let